Hi, John. Can you still hear me all right back there? Get me through all right. I'm a little bit further away than normal from the <clears throat> Also, I apologize. I put the songs in there the opposite direction. <laughs> so that wasn't John's fault. That was on me. Uh, so I apologize for that. Um, if you would go ahead and turn to John 3.16 to start us off with tonight. John chapter 3 and verse 16, familiar verse to us. We've been studying this for several weeks now. Let me read that to us just to get us back in. I'm going to read this one from the Holman Christian Standard Version just to give us a little variety here. And I like, there's, there's something I want to point out in this version uh, that is not always brought out very well in uh, the New King James Version, but we'll talk more about that in just a second. All right, it says this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Well, so far in this study, we have covered the conditional sentence <laughs> that opens up John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And one of the reasons I wanted to look at this differently is because of this idea. Uh, we, we have the motivation of the act, but we haven't gotten to the action yet, right? We've just got that God loved the world, right? Uh, it says, for God loved the world, or another translation could say, since God loved the world. Right? Or because God loved the world, he sent his son. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, is that he initiated this action of sending his son because of his love. And the action that he's doing is that he is giving to us his son. Now the Greek word there is edokin, which would be... Uh, derived from the, the word didomai, which is a pretty common <laughs> word in the Bible and in all Greek, for it's a, a simple word. It means to give. Didomai means to give. And so, actually, when you do, uh, when you go to seminary and you learn, start learning Greek, this is one of the first words that you learn is didomai. And so, it's uh, by necessity here that we study not just the word as we did last week, but the words that are connected to it. See, when we, the way the word way it works is you have a subject, you have a verb, and then you have an object. And so in English, we would say, God sent son. At least that would be a sentence. It doesn't completely make a whole lot of sense, but God sent a son, his son, the son, God sent son. Um, now, the way Greek works, the verb is actually two words because the way the verb is constructed tells you what the subject is, at least somewhat. And so for didomai, or edokin, as we have here, it is giving us a third person. So it says that he, she, for it gave, right? And so, so we know from the conditional phrase at the beginning, for God so loved that he gave, okay? And so we know that the person who's doing the action is God. And we read that it was his love that motivated this giving, but we can't understand it completely without understanding the object of that sentence, which is a phrase, his only begotten son. Now, we're not going to look a whole lot at that phrase tonight. We're going to spend more time looking at that next time. Uh, but we will, uh, for now, at least know the object of that sentence, whom God, or what God, whom God is giving. And so as we look at this, we see a demonstration of God's love. A demonstration of God's love. 
The opening phrase, as we read it in the New King James Version, says, God so loved the world that. And the way that's typically understood to, to uh, mean is that God loved the world so much that, right? That there's a, an, a, a, a quantitative sense there of how big God's love was. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And there's nothing that's incorrect about that idea. But the actual phrase is more descriptive of the manner in which God gave. Right? And so it's more on the emphasis on what God did more than why. And so in the Pullman Christian Standard Version, he puts it this way. For God loved the world in this way. It's more focused on what God did rather than why God did it. And this is the same kind of language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 5, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening. So if you want to turn over to Romans chapter 5, we're going to start by looking at one verse, and then we're going to look at the whole, well, not the whole, but a larger section. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul uses the same language as John or Jesus used in John 3.16, if we understand it in this way. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his own love toward us. Right? This is a demonstration of God's love. This is how he did it. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul provides a theological understanding, a theological treatise here on what it truly means when John and Jesus say that God sent his son. For the father sent his son with a great purpose, and we'll see what that is tonight as we examine the first half of Romans chapter 5 and part of Romans chapter 6. So if you would turn back with me to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, Proving character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay? So we're going to stop there for now because I want us to see first the righteous declaration. The righteous declaration. So right here in the very first part of this verse, we find the purpose, one of the purposes for which God sent Jesus. That is to justify us by our faith in him. Now, what does that mean? What does justification mean? What is justification? Anybody have a thought? Mm-hmm. Yep, I've heard that one too. It's just as if I've never said Justified. Anybody else? Okay, you can. Even if you're wrong, we're not going to justify you. You can can answer the question. What is justification? Okay. To defend or acquit. Let me ask you this. If I were to say, I let's, okay, this isn't a great example, but it's going to work. Um, if I go out and I beat up some guy because he was acting inappropriately toward my daughter, 
and I felt I was justified in my treatment of this guy because of his actions. What does that word justified mean in that context? I felt I was right, right? There we go. All right, so justification is Christ's purpose. He's making us right with God, all right? So there's more to Christ's incarnation than simply justification or even simply sanctification, which we're also going to look at. But I, I think the main purpose that Christ came is that he came to justify us, to declare us right with God because of his acts on the cross. We'll look at that in more detail. Yes. So justification is the doctrine that concerns how believers are declared to be in right standing with God because of our faith in Christ Jesus. So we are justified by faith alone. Right? That's one of the solas from the Reformation. We're faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. When our faith is placed in Christ, we are right with God. By his what? By his wisdom, yes. Yes, okay, so if we look at just verse 1, we have been, since we have been declared righteous by faith, what does that mean for us? Well, first it means that we have peace with God, right? Justification means that we're no longer at war with God. We were in rebellion against God because of our sin, but now we're no longer considered enemies of God. We've entered into a peace treaty with God. Uh, not the best context, but, but the idea of a covenant treaty with God, which uh, was common in, in the Old Testament. I think we've talked about this before, this idea of the covenant and having a, a relationship with God. So justification takes away the guilt of sin, and it makes way for peace with God. Now, when my kids get together with other kids, uh, like, for instance, uh, a few nights ago, or, or I guess it was last weekend now, uh, when we were here, our friends from Stigler uh, had come down to visit some friends in Ardmore, or their parents in Ardmore, actually. And so they came by uh, to hang out with us for a little bit here at the parsonage. And they have two kids that are fairly close to our kids' age, and so... We sent them off to go play so, you know, we could sit around the table and play cards and not be bothered. And so they went back in the room to go play. And what always happens when you send kids to go play? There's always a fuss. There's always somebody coming back. And, the, and here's what happens with us. They come back. We're sitting at the table at playing cards with our friends, and they don't say anything. They just come and sit there and look at us. And we're like, what's going on? Why aren't you playing with your friends? And, of course, there's, well, they did something that made me mad, and now we're not friends anymore, right? But then once you speak with them and, all right, well, let's go work this out, and we go and we kind of massage out the situation, and then they go back and they're friends again, right? It's, it's instant, right? Suddenly we're friends again. Well, this perfectly illustrates the idea between God and man, because man was against God. We were all against God, all in rebellion against God, uh, and so there was this great enmity between us, but at the moment that someone accepts Christ, that enmity is gone. And when that enmity is gone, what's, what's left? Anybody want to take a stab? What? Love? Peace? What else? Family, right? What what did what did it say? What does the Bible say about Abraham? Well, he loved God, but what was he called? What was he called in relation to God? A friend. He was called the friend of God. And then what did Christ call his disciples? 
said, I don't call you servants or slaves, I call you what? Friends, right? And so just as when we take our kids and they're no longer friends anymore and then the enmity's gone and now they're friends again, well, the same thing happens between us and God. We are no longer enemies of God. We're now friends with God. The, the relationship between us, the filial bond, has been restored, and we're in a covenant friendship, a covenant relationship with him, just as Abraham was a friend of God, just as Christ said his disciples were his friends. So God sent Christ to justify us, and in so doing, establishing peace between us and God. So what, what's next? What does this say in verse 2? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, for we have also obtained what? Faith? No, we, we got faith by what? Believing in Christ. So that belief provides us peace. It provides us something else here. As we have peace with God, it grants to us something. I spoke to it a minute ago before when I was praying. We have also obtained something through him by faith and through this grace which is there. We've obtained grace, but what does that grace give us? Dan, can you read uh, verse 2 for us? I, I'm assuming you've got a different translation than I do. I'd like to hear what yours says. says we have obtained what? Our introduction. What does that mean? We've been introduced. What? Knowledge? Uh, kind of. It's really more this idea of being access to God, right? He introduced us to God. We now have access to God, uh, right? We no longer have to go through an intermediary to get to God, we have access. We don't have to go through a priest, right? Christ is our priest. We enter through the veil, right? Uh, Christ has done away. In fact, let me see. I don't think I put it on here. Uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, he says that we can come to the Father through, we can enter into his sanctuary by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, we enter through the curtain that is his flesh and boldly approach his throne, right? And so we have access to God because we're at peace with God, and Christ has granted us access by faith to God, okay? And so because of this, we have also received what? We also, or do what, I guess? We rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. In Ephesians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there if you don't want. We're going to look at two verses there. Uh, he says, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by the circumcised, which is in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. So that describes all of us, right? We were all once without a relationship with God. As Baptists, we believe you cannot have a relationship with God until you accept Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? At that point that you have now a relationship with God, and you demonstrate that by going in through the baptismal waters, and you then join to the church, right? You, we're not like some other traditions where you might be baptized as an infant and be a member of the church and never actually have a relationship with the Lord. We require that you first have a relationship, you make a profession of that faith, 
and then you're able to continue on into baptism, right? And so we have, all of us have been at one point without hope because we were without God. But now that we have God, we have hope in him. And our hope is not in our good works, as it also says in Ephesians chapter 2, but it's in the salvation of Christ Jesus and the peace with God that was accomplished through him. And this hope produces within us a daily confidence in the Lord and the, that despite the conditions of the day, we have hope for the future. And that hope sustains us as we go through difficult trials and temptations of life. Um, but not only do we have hope that's in the future, Paul says we also have hope that's in the past because we cannot just look in, at what the peace that's coming, but we can look at what God's done through situations so far, right? Uh, as we reflect on the ways that God has provided for us, as we look back on our lives, we can see how God guided us through trials, and that provides for us a confidence that he's going to do the same again. And so whatever our current trial of the day, which seems to be there's always something different, right? There's always something uh, coming around the bend that we've not experienced before, but we know that God provided for us then, and he'll provide for us again. We don't glory over these trials. We don't just go above them, and we don't glory about these trials. We, we, we're not wanting them. We're not asking God, give us more trials, but we glory through and in these trials because God Then notice that, that that took us through 3 and 4. Uh, if we go to verse 5, it says this hope will not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through whom? The Holy Spirit, right, who was given to us. And so in his act of justifying us, Christ has granted to us the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is given to each believer. When you accept Christ, you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then Christ gives you, God gives you the Spirit, and the Spirit's job is to point us back to the loving action that the Father provided for us that was evident through his giving of the Son. The Holy Spirit reminds us that God poured out his love to us Paul uses this marvelous illustration, and it's something we can easily picture, but this idea of, of pouring out, right? God's love pours out or streams upon us. And where else do we read about something pouring out or something that is streaming upon us? What else streams upon us? stream that of God's love is, is sweet, but if you trace the, the sweet streams of, of justification back to their source, what is it? The blood of Christ, exactly. We find the, the death of Christ is the source of that justification, and it is through the stream of Christ's blood that all of these privileges that we that Paul's just told us about, that how it all comes to us. You know, we, we sing a song, a, a hymn, there is a fountain that's filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and pain. Right? That's so accurate. So true. Because it is through the blood of Christ that we receive justification. Peace with God. Alright, so let's continue on with verse number 6. For while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves or demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath 
if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. Is there a word that jumps out at you through those passages that's repeated over and over and over? Reconciled, reconciled, reconciliation, right? And so not only do we experience uh, the declaration of righteousness, all right, we also experience the righteous reconciliation through Christ. Uh, and so Paul uh, describes the fountain and the foundation of justification which is the death of Christ. And it is by Christ's death that we are reconciled to God. So Paul supported his claims of verses 1 through 5 by appealing to what God has already done on our behalf to make this possible. And first he says there's an, an improbable sacrifice. Because what God does makes little sense, at least to us. No one in their right mind would die. He deserves to die. Right? So Paul puts forth a situation that is more probable. Right? He says, what about if there's someone who is righteous? Would someone die for a righteous person? Maybe. What about if they're just a good person? Would someone die for them? Maybe, but it's not likely. You know, we do have some stories about people who sacrifice themselves to save others, but it's not really a common occurrence. But now, think about this. This man were even willing to die. Well, we're going to put up a, a hypothetical man. Is ready to die for a good person or someone who's, who's doing all right. You know, he's my friend. I'm willing to, to die for him. I love you so much, I've laid down my life for you, right? We've had friends who would say that, right? I'd take a bullet for you. It's an expression of love. But imagine if this hypothetical guy has another guy that comes up and punches him in the face, right? I don't like that guy. The man has now committed an offense against him, is he likely to die for that person? No, right? No. It would be crazy for someone, it would be crazy if I said, I'm willing to love you. I'm willing to lay down my life. Good. Well, this guy came up and punched me in my face. I'm not going to die for him, right? And we see that in stories from Vietnam, right? Where people were like, I, I don't like that guy. That guy's uh, a jerk. So they, when they go out in battle, they, they just kind of like leave them alone to let them die. <clears throat> There's uh, some stories about that. I'll let you look those up on your own. Uh, most of the ones that I found like that did not have good language in it. Uh, but, uh, but this is the idea, right? That Christ had an offense committed against him. By whom? All of us, right? All of mankind basically walked up and punched Jesus in the face, right? Punched God in the face. We sinned against him. We impinged upon his character. But think, think about just in the physical sense, all that Christ experienced as he was preparing for the crucifixion. First of all, he was beaten. He was scourged with a, a cat of nine tails. He was cursed by men. He was mocked with a, a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. He had a, a robe placed upon his bloody beaten body and then ripped off. He was stripped naked and soldiers gambled for his clothes. He was forced to carry his own instrument of torture up the hill before he laid down upon it where they drove nails into his his arms and into his feet. And even then, Christ could have refused to continue in laying down his life. But he didn't. 
he took it all, and he still died for those men. He died for us. God proves, he demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were enemies against him, Christ died for us. And we are identified with those same men, the men who, who beat, mocked, and killed the Lord. That is us in the scriptures. So James says that if you've broken the law in any one area, you've broken it all. And so you're guilty of it all. And yet because of his great love, Christ died for us. God the Father gave his son and we didn't deserve such a gift, and we didn't, won't ever earn such love. Amazing love is, uh, the word amazing can't even begin to capture what he did, but, but Paul continues in his description of the penalty that Jesus paid for us serves as a background of an even more stunning idea. For if Christ's death accomplished all of this, well, how much more then? Would his life provide us? How much more would his resurrection give us? Well, we tend to focus on the death of Christ more so than on the resurrection, I think. Um, but his death wasn't the end, it was only the beginning, it's only half of the story. I think I've sung the song here before. Pretty sure that I have. It's a song by David Phelps, and it's called The End of the Beginning. Um, but listen to the chorus. It says, He was born of a virgin one holy night in the little town of Bethlehem. Angels gathered round him underneath the stars, singing praises to the great I Am. He walked on the water, healed the lame, made the blind see again, and for the first time here on earth we learned that God could be a friend. And though he never, ever did a single thing wrong, angry crowd chose him and then he walked down the road and died on the cross and that was the end of the beginning Paul began his letter to the Romans by reminding them that humanity all faces God's wrath but then he made a way for us to be reconciled to God through the death of his son we're justified by that but what does that love hold for us once we've been justified, once we've been declared righteous? And this is the turning point of the book of Romans. Because since we've been justified by Christ, what does that mean for us as Christians? Christ is the agent of change. Paul will spend most of the rest of the book of Romans examining this thought in more detail, um, but we don't have time to go through all of the book of Romans, so if you would just let's jump down to ch uh, chapter 6 and verse 14. Uh, sorry, verse 4, and we'll read through verse 14. Chap Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. It says, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if, if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him, for in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God 
and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. So we see, not only did Christ provide righteous justification, righteous reconciliation, he also provides righteous sanctification. Christ died to justify us, to redeem us, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose. And this demonstrates to us the second purpose for which God sent his son. He sanctifies us. And so we become dead to sin. We become dead to sin. For if we identify with Christ in his death in baptism, right? Paul's using this illustration of baptism, right? In baptism, it's a, it's a sign, it's a symbol of what we've accomplished, or not what we've accomplished, what's been accomplished for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. We identify with him in the likeness of his death and burial, though underneath the water, and then we are raised up to walk in new life, right? So, if we identify with Christ in his death, we also identify with him in his life. But some... We forget how bad sin is, right? And so we keep going back to it. It's like a, a, a magnet. We just keep getting pulled to it. Our, our, our mortal bodies continue to do what they've all always done, right? And that's to go back to sin. The only hope we have of living in freedom from sin is to die to it. And since we're not going to physically die, at least not yet, Identifying ourselves with not only Jesus' death, but also his resurrection is the key to overcoming the power of sin in our present fallen state. Uh, we have to remember, death is a consequence of sin. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they didn't have to worry about death until after they sinned. Right? Why do we die? because we have a physical body? No. Right? It's not the fact that we have a physical body. In fact, the bodies that we have now, Scripture tells us, will be glorified at the end of the days. We will still be physical beings. We're not going to be some spiritual beings floating around uh, for all of eternity. Christ had a, a physical bodily resurrection. He's providing the same for us. And I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on this tonight because that's my plan over the next four weeks as we lead up to Easter on Sunday morning. So, a little shameless plug there. Uh, come back Sunday morning for the next four weeks so you can find out about his bodily resurrection. Um, but we, we have physical bodies now. We will have physical bodies then. But they will be without sin. And they will be without sin's effects. Right? So death is a consequence of sin, not a consequence of uh, physicality. So, how do you? Oh, oops. Can I use a computer illustration? Does that work? Sometimes you have a computer or any kind of computing device that just starts doing crazy things. If you call an IT person, what are they going to tell you to do? What's the first thing? Reboot, maybe unplug it, let it sit for 30 seconds, plug it back in. Do you know why? There's these sticks of what we call RAM, right? Random access memory that work as a as a kind of fast memory system, right? It, it does all the computations in there and then pushes it out to the hard drive and hard drive accesses. <coughs> so when you take away the power from it, the electrical charge that's running through that card is removed. Let it sit long enough to where the current doesn't at least have a little bit to keep it going, then it's completely dead. Right? Then you can start it back up and, and reset, and, and everything should work right. And if it doesn't, then you know it's a deeper issue. But that's the reason why that, that electrical power that's going through that RAM keeps it going. So even if you unplug it and then immediately plug it back in, there may not have been enough time there for the electrical charge to die out. Well, 
what, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Um, when something is alive, when it's receiving a constant power flow, it has the power and the ability to do what it was created to do. In our bodies, since we're not removed from the presence of sin, we still have the power of sin that reigns over our bodies, and the only way that we can get rid of that is through death. In death, when something's dead, it loses its power, it loses its capability. Well, Paul here is saying that in baptism, we identify with the death of Christ, and we illustrate a death to sin. And then we also see a resurrection, right? That's like plugging the thing back in, getting the power back going. And if we've died to sin, how can we live in it anymore? That's Paul's question he's posing here. If we are dead to sin, we've identified identify ourselves with Christ, and we're dead to sin, how can it still have power over us anymore? Well, what's the answer to that? If I were to walk up to you or some stranger walk up to you on the street and say, okay, wait a minute. has removed sin from you, why are you still doing sinful things? Okay. We have a sin nature, but I thought Christ took care of that, right? He, he paid the penalty for sin, right? Resurrection is transformational. It transforms us, but we haven't died physically. We identify with the death of Christ, but we haven't physically died yet. And Christ hasn't come back to reset the system, so to speak. And so he's provided an alternate source within us. So we have two natures, right? Paul speaks of two different natures that's within us. We have our the, the nature of humanity, the sinful nature, and then we have the nature uh, that he's put within us of the spirit, right? So human power can't keep the transformational power that was effective in the resurrection originally, can't keep that force moving. It requires a separate power system, and that is the Spirit. And sometimes we, we think of sanctification as primarily the role of the Spirit, and that Christ has nothing to do with it. But that's not the case. Uh, the Spirit simply empowers us. Well, I say simply, not simply. He, but He does. He empowers us to continue in the sanctification that was initiated when we identify with Christ. Uh, he points us back to Christ, he points us to the life of Christ, how Christ lived, that we have recorded in the scriptures, and says, listen, this is the way you're supposed to live. So it's the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word of God coming together in our lives to transform us, to make us more like Christ. That's what sanctification is, is becoming more like Christ. And so to answer the question, we say, well, we've got two separate natures battling within us, trying to, to reach the sanctification while trying to keep the sin out. Um, well, let, let's skip down a bit here to verse 12. Yes, sir. No, go right ahead.
says here, stop feeding the dog of sin, right? Stop feeding that nature. Feed the dog of righteousness, and how do you do that? It says by offering it up to God to be used as his instrument. For if you continue to allow it to go, basically you're going to be an instrument one way or the other, right? You're either going to be an instrument for unrighteousness, for sin, or you're going to be an instrument for life and for God, a tool for righteousness. Because, listen, sin has no power over you because of Christ and the spiritual nature that he's injected <laughs> into your life. So what does it mean to us that God sent his Son? What it means to us is that God sent his Son to us to justify us by his death, but also to sanctify us by his life. And he did this for the purpose that none should perish, but have everlasting life. So, we're about out of time. Uh, let me tell you this, a couple of things real quick. Next time, we'll be looking at what exactly is meant by the phrase, his own this is very important because it's a phrase which has sparked a lot of debate across history. Uh, there's been many heresies that come out of this question, so we'll look at some of those and, and how to defend against those. This next section may take us a few weeks because it's such a big topic. But next week, we'll be having the Lord's Supper service in the evening service. Uh, so plan to be here for that to make that a little bit better known. Uh, we for, kind of forgot you know, that it's March and it was time to do that. So uh, spoke with Dan and you know, maybe we can do it this afternoon. Uh, yeah, we could do that. So uh, come and be a part of that next week. And then the following week will be business meetings. And so, uh, and then the following week will be when we have our, our meals. Uh, so we'll, uh, and then the following week is Easter. So. <laughs> Anyway, plan on that for next week's uh, Lord's Supper service, and then uh, 
God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You provided it to us through through mediums that we can understand. You provided it to us in human language that we can read and study and understand. God, you didn't just provide it to us. You didn't just speak it to people. You empowered us by the power of your spirit. as we go out, say this in Jesus' name.